I want to mobilize people because they'll come alive when they're deploying truth. For me, truth in somebody's head just makes them more religious. Truth practice, even with failure, makes them more dangerous. In a world where business and purpose intersect, how can leaders transform their companies to create a positive societal impact? Welcome to Seat Go Create, where we're joined by Brett Johnson, a seasoned marketplace veteran, thought leader, and innovator who has helped redefine the purpose of businesses beyond the bottom line. Brett, with his vast experience working with over 400 companies worldwide, has made a significant impact in guiding corporations toward a greater purpose. As the founder of the Institute for Innovation, Integration, and Impact Incorporated, and a prolific author, his work spans leadership, societal transformation, and work-life integration. Brett, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to the conversation too. Like I said, right before we hit record, you're such a perfect fit for interacting with redefining success in leadership and business and ministry. It sounds like that's somewhat been your mission from what I've read and studied mm -hmm. on you. So, but, but before I dive into that deep end and we talk about what part of the world you're in and all that, Brad, mm -hmm. if somebody asks you what you do, what do you mm -hmm. typically tell them? Well, one of my passions is to abolish dichotomy. So I teach, I write, I co-labor with my wife to abolish dichotomy uh, is a negative and the positive is to model integration, to mobilize and to release the identity of leaders uh, and to inspire multi-generational households. So that's part of what we do as we repurpose businesses and seek to bring about societal transformation. And then part of that is what we call comprehensive decapitalizing things with different types of capital, including not just intellectual and relational and financial, but spiritual capital as well. So it's a bit of a, a ball of things. It, it is quite a bit. And we'll, I think we're going to have a wide ranging conversation here. You've got so many books that are fascinating. I wanted to read, I wanted to read multiple ones. I didn't have the time before our conversation and the resources you have, but, but when, I mean, when, when you bring even a small amount of what you just said, when you bring that up to people, what's the response you get? Cause that's, that's big. That's, there's a lot there, Brett. Yeah, there, there is. And, you know, sometimes it can seem a little bit like you're trying to boil the ocean. And uh, I remember once time I was flying into France, in the south of France, and it was the flight had been a 3 a.m. flight out of Tel Aviv, and so it was five in the morning. And I looked out the window and I said, God, I don't have it in me to tackle every giant in every country. And he said, yeah, but you can tackle the same giant in every country. <laughs> and so he didn't let me off the hook. And so that giant for me has been the secular sacred dichotomy, you know, this you know, this is spiritual and this isn't. And some things are God's and some things aren't. But so my passion is everything is God's and how do we find God in every part of society? So that's a big umbrella. So and with a view to bringing about change in society, now to do that, we have to unlock everyday people. Uh, many, many years ago, I was leading a church in South Africa. I was also working at Pricewaterhouse and consulting to a mission organization. But I found that most of the people were sitting in my church, bored out of their skulls, underdeployed, underutilized. And these weren't the super spiritual types who like to preach or evangelize on the street. These were the finance, marketing, IT, sales, everyday business people who were second class citizens. And I thought, man, we have to really, really change that. And so that was in the early 1980s, 1981, that. I could just see that problem. And I thought, man, I really need to mobilize the people, but that means mobilizing everyday marketplace people. And so that's at the heart of it. And uh, it does sound a lot, but the real goal is how do you bring about the kingdom of God 
in practical, non-religious sounding ways in the marketplace. Hello, Seek Go Create listeners. This is Tim Winders. Let's take a short break. Have you ever caught yourself dreaming about a future where your leadership not only achieves its goals, but also inspires those around you? As an executive coach, I specialize in transforming those dreams into achievable visions. With my coaching, we don't just chase goals, we create legacies. Drawing from my own experiences and a faith-driven approach, I help you align your professional ambitions with your deepest values, ensuring a journey that is both successful and fulfilling. If you're ready to carve a path that is authentically yours, it's time for us to talk. Visit timwinders.com forward slash coaching to schedule a free discovery coaching call. Yes, you and I'll just get on the phone and have a call. Again, that's timwinders.com forward slash coaching, and you could read some more information and then schedule a call right on my calendar. Let's turn your vision into reality. Now back to Seek Go Create. Why is it, you know, one of the things that we do when we do strategy, I'm sure you do it when you go in with companies, when I work with companies, you know, we first, many times we have to state the problem. And so, so my, my, I guess maybe my sort of big question here as we get rolling is, what's the problem and why does it exist? Why, why is it so hard for people to, you know, go out into the marketplace, you know, make a few dollars, support their family, do the things they need to do, or lead companies, businesses, organizations, and operate in faith or vice versa? Why is it that they go into a, their faith community and then they can't bring some of their skills? I mean, I just sort of said some of the problem, but what is the problem and and why is there a problem? And then we'll try to tackle it in the rest of okay, our time together. Sure. But what's going yeah, on? Look, I think some of it is bad teaching, bad theology. Uh, and some of it is just an implied uh, arrogance almost on the part of church leaders or mission leaders. And I've led both, you know, so I'm not, well, I guess I might be knocking them, but we have the same issues in every sphere of society, you know? So, um, I mean, in education, unless you're a PhD and you're writing for the academic community, they, they have their own elitist thing. So everybody has a bit of it, you know, but so part of it is bad theology, but I think part of it is also a lack of purpose. I think, you know, people used to say to me when I wrote the book Convergence, it was about how do you integrate your career and your calling and your community, including your church community, and uh, and how do you co-create with God? And people would say, oh, yeah, but I don't know what my calling is. Now I tell them, in other words, they say, if I knew my calling, I would do it. So now I tell them, you're called to work. 100% of us are. Bible is very clear on that. Now, whether you work for the First Presbyterian Church or for the Second National Bank, it's not the big deal. It's not whose name is on the paycheck. So first, un understanding work and the redemptive value of work and the importance of work and, and working as God sees work as a wholesome thing. Right now, there's a lot of pressure on young people. If you take the early, the Gen Zers and the younger ones, they're like corporations are bad and a capitalism in, is bad, work is bad, there's about six, seven million people who have no intention of working in the U.S. right now, and they're quite able-bodied. You know, and there's, there's help-wanted signs all over the place. Part of it is I think that there's an attack on work as the value of work, and I think that's partly because we're made in the image of God, and we're made to work like Him, and that when people see your work and my work, they'll see what God's like. And so it's no wonder work is under attack. So I think there's some cultural things, there's some bad theology, and then there's a lack of purpose where we think it's okay that the purpose of business is to make money or to make the best widget or to uh, you know, get funded and have an exit and so forth. So we've settled for a lesser purpose for a business or for an organization. It's, it also seems as if, Brett, and I'm going I'm to ask you if you know some of the history on maybe how this came to be, that in 
many of the ministry circles, and I've been in and out of churches, I've been to Bible school for a few years, there is either a stated or unstated more important purposes than others. There's a ranking of purposes. And, you know, I'll go to Bible school and I'll say this sort of tongue in cheek, but it's real. You know, the the ultimate is missions work in some, you know, third world right. country. Secondary to that is some other type of evangelist. Next would be maybe a local pastor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ranking, ranking, ranking. And then there's the business person, you know, way on down the list. Well, I've always been a yeah. business person. Yeah. I mean, I've shared with people here. I actually was saved in a business setting. I'm not even sure that I would have gone in a lot of churches, mm-hmm. but, but what, what, how did we come to be here? Because if we go back historically, I heard someone say the other day that the Levitical priests of the old Testament, they were pretty much butchers. All they did was, was handle livestock. Mm-hmm and handle sacrifices yeah. and butchering all day long. They probably didn't have a lot of time to grab a microphone and preach and teach, but any, any perspective on how we ended up with that being the message in much of our religious circles today? I think it does go back a long way. I say partly the Greeks are to blame with their dualistic thinking about, you know, the separation of your spirit and your soul and your body and all of this kind of stuff. But I think more recent history would be, um, when the industrial revolution came along, part of, of what had happened, this whole, you've got to separate God and business, or you've got to separate your work and your faith. Uh, when you had an agrarian economy, your church sat on the land of a landowner. So in many respects, uh, the pastor or the priest or the minister was subject to the whims of the landowner because he was economically subjected. And so then came a time which said, no, we need to separate those things. The idea was that the preacher or the Bible teacher wouldn't be impinged upon by somebody through an economic lever that was actually just, the intention wasn't to separate faith and work. You can't really separate those things because faith and risk are two sides of the same coin. If you're in business, you take risks, you have to have faith. And um, so I think there's part of an unintended consequences of trying to separate out those things to create a bit more freedom actually for faith, but it had an, another reality. So I think that that's part of the problem. I would say within church circles, however, I remember a lady, I met her and she was a mining engineer and a metallurgist. She worked for one of the big mining houses and she, as they worked in a community, cause they had a big mine in a town with lots of small businesses, she went to her church leaders and said, I think God wants me to focus on ministering to these businesses. And they looked at her and they said, Jessica, you've got your ladder up the wrong wall. You have to do your ministry inside the church. And she had this conflict and she, there's many others I've met like that. God's telling me, do this, be practical, do stuff in the marketplace. But my church leaders are telling me, do the opposite. And they feel there's this tension. And so they go into a funk. And uh, it's, a, it's a challenge for them because, and it's really just bad theology. And so, you know, from my hmm. perspective, I, I don't worry about the church going away. You know, the scripture says that Jesus will build a church, whether it's in a storefront, whether it's in a living room, whether it's in a stadium, whether it's a mega church, a tiny church. I'm not worried about that. What I would love to see, however, is a church in every business. I'd love to see a church in every classroom, an expression of the kingdom of God. And uh, I think if we could get our heads around that, then you would know, man, we don't have enough resources. We've got to empower and mobilize everybody, which is why Jesus died. He died so that you can be a minister, I can be a minister, regardless of whether we went to Bible school, so that each of us can be fully equipped to extend the kingdom of God. So I think there's some historical reasons. I think there's some control reasons, you know, and some of which we've also adopted the hierarchical systems of the world. So when I look in the Old Testament, in the Jewish world, a quorum was 10 
believers, 10 Jewish people, basically, you couldn't do something official. Like even now, if, if a, an Israeli soldier dies in Gaza or something, you need 10 people before you can do the funeral. This is, is part of what it is. And um, so a, a rabbi, I got an email from a rabbi who kind of explained the way that they would do what we today would call a church plant. In church plant, we take somebody from South Africa or from North Dakota. We send them to Africa with their wife and two kids. They get some financial support. They arrive with a, a, an SUV and a, or whatever they're going to have. No, that's not what they would do. In the Old Testament setup, you'd get 10 business leaders who would come together and form a quorum. And then they would call a rabbi. And the rabbi, of course, would live at the same level as the others because they would each give 10%. So you had this built-in, but it wasn't the cult of the individual leader. I'm the church planter. I'm the bishop. I'm the apostle. I'm the this. No, it was a quorum of leaders, a plurality of leadership, which is... I think we've lost some of that as well. And that leads to this hierarchical view and people giving themselves titles, you know. I'm also not sure. I, I, I had another question, but I want to ask this one uh, since you just brought that up, Brett. I'm also not sure that men, man, can handle some of those hierarchical roles we've placed them in. And I think we've got plenty of evidence of that. Yeah. I mean, if we look at, you know, people that fall, I mean, are, are we trying to ask more of many of the leaders? Yeah. And I know you teach on leadership. Yeah. I know you and I are going to discuss it here shortly, but are, are, we, are we putting too much pressure on people? 100%. To yeah. do things they shouldn't be doing. No, I think you're quite right. I think it's um, what I observed some years ago, probably 20 plus years ago, is that if you call a new pastor, a church puts out a search committee and gets a new minister, whether it's a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, or whatever, that person's got about an 18-month shelf life. It sounds terrible, but uh, that's why guys will go off and start their own church, because then they call the shots, they're good for 10, 20 years, or whatever. Uh, but part of it is the crazy job expectations. We expect you to preach... 48 out of 52 weeks in the year. We expect you to visit so many people in their homes. We ex and and you know, it's a long list of criteria. Instead of saying, we expect you to fall on your face. When you do, we have a safety net behind you. And it's, it's this board or this eldership group or this team behind you, and we're going to help you. We don't expect you to be perfect. We would consider it a failure if you preached every week because then you're not empowering other people, which is what you're supposed to do, and so forth. So we could change the expectations and we could free people up. It would make a huge difference. You know, in the business world, the number one fear of CEOs repeatedly is one day they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and I've heard, I've, I've so many times I've heard CEOs, you know, one day they're going to figure out, I don't know what's going on. Well, pastors and church leaders have the same kind of thing. And it's a little bit worse because when you bring God into the equation, it's like, well, isn't God supposed to give you these superpowers? And therefore, you should be impervious to this stuff. Therefore, you don't show your weaknesses. Therefore, you get lonely. And it's just a, a bad cycle. Yeah, I, I definitely see the challenges there. What, one of the things, Brett, you're, you're in South Africa right, right now. I visited there a few times. A part of South Africa. Down in Cape in? Town. Cape Town. One of the most beautiful yeah. cities in the world. Cape Town. Stunning. What do you see? And I know you've traveled extensively and I know you spend a good bit of your time in the U.S. also, but. Do you notice anything about this topic that we're discussing culturally as you go from different countries? Yeah. I mean, we, those of us that are in the United States, and you know this, you know it well, we have this arrogant attitude that everything sort of revolves around us and that the world spills out. But do you notice any differences with this topic we're discussing yeah in other parts of the world that might be beneficial for us to understand. Yeah, that's a really good point. It does vary a lot by country, and I'll give you three or four examples. So I was speaking once in Egypt, and uh, 
they asked a question about a pastor of a church having a side hustle, a side business. And it's against their rules because they'll pay you a hundred pounds a month. You've got a couple of kids, three, four kids. You, you can't afford to live, but they will say, well, then you don't have the faith to be a pastor. If you go and get a side hustle, another job, you drive Uber or you do whatever, then you, you don't have the faith to be a pastor. Whereas when I was in the Ukraine 30 years ago, I asked the head of a denomination, what percentage of your pastors have other jobs? He said, 99.9. I'm the only one who doesn't. And he was the head of the denomination. He said, everybody else has another job. When I go into Nigeria, for example, most of the leaders, certainly many of them are bivocational. So they're a judge and they're a pastor. They're a government minister and they're a pastor. They're a bank CEO and they're a pastor. Now, there is a bit of hierarchy in the sense that they're a pastor and the CEO, the bank CEO slots in underneath that. In other words, you know, I have a friend, he's a, he's a high government official and they call him pastor, whatever. Uh, but it's an honored thing, but it's not uncommon for them to have multiple jobs. And then they build the systems behind them. So my friend, I have a friend who pastors a good sized church, heads up a big department in the, in the federal government in another city and oversees another 150 churches. And, but he has a support staff. He has people who work with him. He delegates, he sets up systems, you know, so they cope with a lot of stuff. So if you said to somebody in that context, oh, you can't be a businessman and a pastor, it makes no sense. So it does vary from country to country. And I think in the States, you know, this notion that, well, you can't be a pastor. I was talking to a major missions organization. This was probably 20 plus years ago. And they showed me an org chart on their wall. And they had highlighted many of the spots on the org chart with yellow. And I asked them, what are those highlights? And they said, those are all the people that we're missing. And so I said, well, why don't you go up the road to where you're having your, your crossroads discipleship training school and just go and tell them about all the openings you have. No, we can't do that. I said, why not? Well, because they're having a spiritual experience up there, and this is the practical running of our organization. And I'm like, you know, so we shoot ourselves in the foot. And um, so I, I think that country by country, it does vary quite a lot. And I just think it's what's going to solve some of this is antagonism towards Christians, because I've worked in some countries where it's hard to get a permit to put up a church. So you have your church in one of the floors of a bank building. And when you go in there, it feels like a bank of it and, uh, or like a corporate. And I think more and more, there will be pressures. Uh, even in Canada, I was up in Canada many years ago, and they told me that if you have nonprofit status, the government can tell you what you can preach and can't preach. So I was speaking to some guys, a guy who went through our, our repurposing business training, and he said they were thinking about flipping their church to be a business so that the government wouldn't tell them what to do. It might be that we're forced to squeeze out some of the secular, sacred dichotomy through pressure. I hope not, but I suspect it might happen. I just had a thought of a, a good friend. We've interviewed him here, Mike Bear who he and I did consulting work back during the 90s and do work together from time to time, he actually would go into Kazakhstan and countries like that and do kind of the micro business model because you could not come in during those times and start mm. churches and they would build up people in their business. They would be believers yeah. and that is how the ministry would happen. That's the only right. way it would happen. It wasn't going yeah. to be a, a church being started you know, Brett, one thing that I want to ask this maybe before we get too much farther is I think everybody has a journey that puts them, I guess, down certain paths. And obviously you've had a journey that's merged, uh, you know, the spiritual and the sacred with the practical and the business. 
along the way. And, you know, our one of our taglines here is redefining success. And I loved, um, I looked at your site, you've got repurposing business, transforming society. Those are big, big words. Before we kind of, you know, tackle all of that, give some highlights of how you have come to be kind of at this crossroads, at this place where there's dichotomies that you're attempting to bust up because people don't go down just a path of becoming a pastor and all of a sudden start thinking this way or just go down a path of business owner and do that either. How, how did, how did, how did that happen? That's a good question. I would say it wasn't through some great forethought. I think it was partly just because I asked God, for example, when I, I studied, uh, I finished an undergraduate and then I got approached by Youth for Christ. Would I join their staff? And uh, my dad said, you can do it. My mom said, no way. You have to finish it. You have to become like a CPA, a chartered accountant. So I did that. So now I'm working at Pricewaterhouse. And um, part of my view of things was that the church that I was attending, which was started by four business people, uh, it needed some structure and some order in it. And I, I was 24 years old, 23 years old, and I was, I pressed the pastor to appoint elders. So he pointed some elders and I was one of them. The other guy left. And then I ended up getting a field promotion because the pastor left. So now I'm running the church. So now my question was, God, when are you going to tell me to quit my job at Pricewaterhouse so I can run the church? Well, he didn't. So I had two jobs and I had to figure out how to make them work. Then I had a friend with Youth with a Mission and I ended up consulting to Youth with a Mission and traveling overseas, looking for best practices in missions and figuring out I could mobilize the business people in my church to serve mission organizations. So now I had three jobs and I just had to figure out how to make this work. And balance was not the answer. When I was a young believer, I attended classes on the balanced Christian life, you know, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God, favor with man. So, so much time for physical, so much time for spiritual, so much time for mental, so much time for social. And if you've got three jobs, it doesn't work unless you figure out how to integrate these things, then you have a problem. So fast forward, I'd moved from Pricewaterhouse to KPMG to Computer Sciences Corporation. During that time, I'd started a nonprofit in California called Professionals for Christ. And then we later changed the name to Equip and that became the repurposing business thing. And uh, so I was working regular jobs and consulting to mission organizations primarily and churches, and then also doing my day job of consulting to businesses. And so I just ended up living in these multiple worlds and I had to figure out how to blend them together so that you didn't have your spiritual life and your social life and your work life and so forth. So it became down to practical choices. So for example, in the business world, you were expected to take clients out for business meals, sometimes business dinners or whatever. I would bring them to my home. They got to meet my kids. I could have the dinner at home. It was a bit more pressure on my wife, uh, but they got to see the real me. They got to interact. I wasn't away. By the same token, when the kids were very young, we couldn't do mission trips. So we invited the missionaries to come and stay with us, come and stay in our home. And so hospitality is the glue that can pull various things together. So that was one of them. And then your de the definition of success, you know, I had to deal with that early on uh, when I was a partner at KPMG and I quit to go to Computer Sciences Corporation because I felt my family needed more of my time. I mean, they couldn't believe it. You work your whole life to become a partner in one of the big six firms or the big four firms. But it depends who's got your scorecard, right? So I never let Pricewaterhouse or KPMG or CSC hold my scorecard. I had to be, had to live for an audience of one. And I had to also settle, when I say settle, I had to accept the fact that success from God's perspective is different from success from man's perspective. So that one I had to settle. And I'm not saying it's always easy because you know, I don't have a 401k. I don't have the 
the benefits of all of those things that have come out of a corporate life. Um, but I do have other things. You know, we're super rich in relationships. We've worked in countries around the world. We've trained thousands of people. We have a, a big household, if you like. Um, but would it, is it success from a corporate career perspective? Oh, no, not at all. So for me, my journey was a mixed one, almost forced, and I had to just figure it out because God didn't let me off the hook. So eventually, when we were running the Institute, one of my staff said to me, Brett, what are we? Are we a business or are we a ministry? I said, yes. He said, no, 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 you don't understand the question. <laughs> and so you end up in this place where there's no difference between mission, business, ministry, church. I have people coming to us who go through our training and they say, oh, this has been my best experience of church. Well, we don't say we're a church. We're a, we carry a business umbrella because we can go into any country in the world as a business. And but when you don't have these separate labels for things, it's all just God's. Then, and, and I arrived there. It was also a little bit of modeling in that my parents, I remember when I was a teenager, I asked my mom, what would dad do if he had more money? And she said he'd plant more churches. Because my parents, as business people, started churches. The country was growing. A new neighborhood starts up. It needs a church. So that's what you do. And who started the church? The business people did. So that was pretty normal. So one thing you brought up, and, and you mentioned a, a little bit of this earlier, you just said one of the things that you had to do was really make sure you understood what success yeah. meant for you. One of, one of our theories or foundations here is that most people don't take the time to really define what success means for them. And you mentioned earlier purpose. I think that's, they may not be the same, but they're related. They might be siblings, you know, purpose, what does success yeah. mean to you? And I think that's where dichotomies begin arising. You mentioned earlier that you bust up dichotomies and separate those out. Yeah. What, I mean, I, I just, I consider that to be foundational to a lot of the conversation we're right. having here. What, and I know you've got a lot of resources, you've got books, you've got things like that. So maybe we can start talking about some of that here, but Brett, what, because I do think that people struggle with it. I've struggled with it. I mean, I, you know, I was a, I owned companies and then in 2008, they all disappeared. And I realized my identity, even though I had a faith about me, I was wrapped yes. up in how successful my business yes. was. So, so how do people begin pressing in and identifying what success means for them, not copying what, what Tim's success is or Brett's success yeah. or, you know, whoever's, how do they do that? Give some practical yeah. stuff. I love John the Baptist in this regard. I think, man, what a tough job, you know, and he had a downwardly mobile career path. And he says, <laughs> he's like, he must increase, I must decrease. I mean, he's losing market share to his cousin. You know, his followers are leaving and going after his cousin. He ends up in jail for, for doing the job he's supposed to do. But he says, you know, a man can only have or do what God's given him to do. And so it's what's my assignment versus somebody else's assignment. So firstly, not measuring my life by your yardstick and vice versa. So I think that there's that. I also think that Psalm 1 talks about, you know, blessed is the, is the person, the man or the woman who, you know, does various things and they will be like a tree planted by a river and so forth, bearing fruit in season. So I think that if success is a pursuit, it's an idol, it's sin. If success is a consequence of obedience, it's a fruit. And so for me, I'm looking for fruit, not pursuit. And sadly, much of the be a good Christian stuff, the self-help Christian stuff is the pursuit of success. Even if it looks like godly, dressed up, sanctimonious, nice smelling success, actually it's still a pursuit versus the fruit of a life of obedience. So for me, 
what's God asking me to do? Am I obeying the things he's told me to do? Am I loving the people he's, I mean, I remember when we started the Institute, it was the late 1990s. It was probably 96, 97. And I said, okay, God, I need to know how do I have a predictable income stream for this new business? A day goes by, two days go by, three days go by, no answer. I said, God, you're not answering my question. He said, it's the wrong question. I said, what's the right question? He said, who do I want you to serve? So God's not obliged to answer stupid questions. I figured that out. And so even now, when I'm about to run a class called Lemonpreneur and when people speak to entrepreneurs, they talk about the lean business canvas and, and you've got to figure out your customers and your, your, you know, what your big idea is and your unique value proposition and all of this stuff. Well, the question isn't how do you get an income stream? The question is, are we serving the people that God wants us to serve, whether they're paying or not? Now, I happen to believe that finances can facilitate relationships. In other words, if I'm renting your RV, uh, it gives us a chance to have a relationship, but it's not a metric of success. And, um, and so, yeah, for me, practically be happy to be obedient. And then if there is an economic shortfall, when there is an economic shortfall, because sometimes there is. You have to say, okay, God, either I'm going to trust you through this thing because you've always come through before, or I've got to ask you for a way. Do you have a better way of doing something that I haven't thought about? And I also think it's different for different people. So I've met people who have a great formula for making money. God has gifted them to do it. And for others, he said, Look, I don't want you to tell people your needs. I don't want you to advertise. I don't want you to market. I will do the marketing for you. Now, each person has to deal with what they're given in their, their hands. And, and they're unique and they're made differently. And uh, so I fall more into the latter category. So when I left KPMG to go to Computer Sciences Corporation, I took a, about a third of a pay cut is what I did. But I got a commission on what my practice did. So there was an upside. And a Jewish man, a Jewish believer from New York had once said to me, you've got to put yourself in a position where God can bless you. So you have to be, put yourself in a position of risk. Now, having a regular income with a 401k, with a company car, with a housing allowance is not exactly a position of risk. Some people are called to it. If you're called to be in the corporate world, that's fine. But that's actually just hidden slavery for many people. And so, so I went to Computer Sciences Corporation, took a cut. But God had said to me, don't worry about the income. So he specifically said that to me. And then he did some miraculous things and took care of it. So when he told me to start the institute, I already had in my memory bag, don't worry about the income. Now there have been times when I should be worried. Um, I remember once I got a call from my accountant, I was driving to the dentist in San Jose in, in, the, San Francisco, in the Silicon Valley. And my accountant called me and said, Brett, you have to get ready to write a big check to the IRS. I went to the dentist on the way home. I literally thought to myself, I should start worrying about the tax issue now. And clear as a bell, God said to me, you do not have a right to worry. Wow. So now I remember that. When a financial difficulty comes along, I don't have a right to worry. And so, because worry is a counter kingdom, key performance indicator, if you like. And so it ties back to this question of success. Well, what are you worrying about? Are you worrying about status? Worrying about what people think of you? Uh, I remember sitting on my, we were renting a house in, in Redwood City and I had my deck and I looked out at my neighbor was chief legal guy at one of the big high-tech companies. And I thought to myself, oh, I remember the days when I used to have a regular income and so forth. And I was reading the Psalms, and it's the Psalm that says, know that the Lord sets apart the godly for himself. So it's like God's got a hundred sheep, and one of them is called Tim. 
And he says, I want to play with Tim for a year or so, you know? So he sets you apart for himself. Well, that's a huge privilege. And you think you got fired, you lost a client, you're going through a quiet period. And God is thinking, I've got some time with Brett. I've got some time with Tim. So it, you know, it's a different metric of success. Otherwise we say, oh, Brett's lost it. You know, he got fired by a client or he can't hold down a job or whatever it might be. I, I do think at times that sometimes worry, I, I think it is for me, my wife and I this year, one of the things we're studying and meditating more on is this aspect of eternal mindset versus short-term thinking. I, I, I think we're going to learn at some point that time is not really what we all think it is. And that's really, we create a lot of our own deadlines and create yeah. these you know, probably situations where we say we've got to have X amount of money by here, et cetera, things like that. But I also love how you, you have a lot of information related to the kingdom of God. And one of the things that I've attempted to study and learn more about is the kingdom of God and the way I word it for me, this, this is my message so that Tim has an understanding of what my purpose is, is that on a daily basis, I am asking the Lord, what is my assignment in his kingdom today or this minute or this instant or this week or whatever, you know, trying to remove some time from it. And so I do, I do love that concept of assignment. You brought it up earlier, but before we get too much farther, I want to ask, because I think this leads us into some of the resources and the things that you have, you you said that the Lord told you you're asking the wrong question, not, you know, how do you bring in revenue, but who do you serve? So, so I'm going to ask you now, who is it that you serve? Define some of those groups and categories. And because I, I see a lot of stuff when I look at your resources, your books, I see a lot of stuff. And so define for me a little bit better, I guess, who, who do you serve? Who does your, the Institute and your company and your organization serve sure. right now? Good question. So the first group is not the first group. I'll just give you three groups. They're like a, a tripod, if you like. One is people who are working in corporates. They have good business skills. They have a good education. They might be from CEOs to directors to mid-market managers and so forth. They believe there's something more to their work. They believe that they have skill sets that can be used in the kingdom of God and they want to get mobilized and they want to figure out how do they bring biblical principles into their workplace without all the religious trappings. And so these are people that they're working for a company and there's, there's just millions of them doing so. And so people in the marketplace, for me, they're a little bit like Paul was called to the Gentiles, the marketplace is is my place. So starting with people who are in, in those businesses, mid-market business owners is the next category. So these are people who own their own business. They can do what they want to do roughly in the company. They have the authority to bring about changes. And those are the mid-market companies that we want to see repurposed. It's not that we don't want to see the corporates repurposed, but typically you have to do a buyout or you have to have you know, a major thing for that to happen in a Cisco, in an Apple or something like that. Whereas uh, in a mid-market companies, many of the jobs are created by mid-markets. People have the freedom to implement and execute without saying, oh, well, I can't do this because of the board or because of the shareholders. And a lot of the growth potential sits there. And then the third category is the entrepreneurs who want to have a business that's going to make a difference in the world. And so for those people, they're saying, right, I want to set out from the beginning and build my business on a foundation of truth. They don't buy into the success to significance myth. You know, first I'll be successful, then I'll be significant. Say like, no, I want to be significant from the beginning, even if I have to make some compensation in terms of how much I earn or what my career looks like. I want to start a business that's going to make a difference in my community or in the world. 
So it's those people and equipping them with some of the basics. Work is worship. Work is good. God worked before there was the fall. Discipleship is teaching people to work the way that God designed them to work. Uh, these very basic things, you're called to work, you know, and, and co-creating with God is a wonderful thing to do, whether it's a new business or a new product. So those are the entrepreneurs. Now, over the last uh, 20 plus years, we've worked with about 400 plus mid-market companies. Over the years, I've worked with many, many executives from, you know, Fortune 50 companies in the, uh, down to Fortune 500 companies. We've worked with our fair share of entrepreneurs. They require a lot of handholding. And uh, part of my passion there is because I think it's unacceptable to have this 80% failure rate. It would be like, you know, you've got five kids, four out of the five are a failure, and you and your wife say, yeah, it's no problem. We got one, you know, <laughs> and you know, you would say, like, what are we doing wrong as parents? You know, one of the kids isn't doing that well. Maybe two, you're like, oh my gosh, what are they? And so we would be distraught if we were parents and we had a 20% success rate. But we buy into the system that it's okay. Well, if, if one out of 10 kids knocks it out of the park, it'll make up for the other nine. It's so diabolical. So for me, as we raise up, there's millions of people entering the workforce or actually coming, starting their own businesses, doing things, whether they're high schoolers who are building apps or people who are doing things or people who are, I mean, categories of work we didn't have when you and I are young, like neither of us wanted to be an influencer. <laughs> and uh, or, so how do you help them to do this kind of stuff off a biblical foundation? And, and that's really... I don't think there's a money, a lot of money in that. So for example, at the end of the month of the 25th, we start a new class called Lemonpreneur. How do you take some of these concepts of plural leadership and bring them to entrepreneurs, for example? So that's our third group. So in the middle, we have the mid-market leaders and that the definition of mid-market varies by country. Of course, in the US, it's a pretty good sized company. But in a, a developing world, uh, those will be smaller companies. But it's we don't do our daily bread and butter with, you know, consulting to tiny companies. We've got the systems and the processes and so on to deal with businesses that have growth potential, even if they're small, uh, otherwise mid-sized companies. And then, I, I mean, I, I have worked with and I still work with governments, with, um, you know, I've worked with governors, with people in federal government, uh, universities, etc. So I'm not allergic to that, uh, but my sweet spot is the marketplace. I'm, I'm curious, Brett, I've, I've run into this some myself, and then I wonder, I'll ask questions like you just brought up, are we not equipping and preparing some people for success? Or... At times, I wonder if we have a mismatch. So I'll, maybe I'll ask it this way. You've got three fairly distinct groups. And there's some overlap with skill sets and obviously different things. And, and obviously some cultures and countries impacted also. But I'm curious, Brett, how often have you seen that someone is working towards and maybe even struggling to be an entrepreneur and do a startup and maybe bootstrapping and all of those things when maybe they should just have a role and go work in a larger organization, either a mid-market or a large company. I've, I've seen that a little bit recently and I've, and I've, I, I sort of know how to handle it, but sometimes we can fool ourselves. So ha have you seen yeah. that? And what are your thoughts on it when I bring that up? My thought is a good observation. You know, as I've said to some people, don't try to change the world if you don't know how to change your socks. So I think that there are some early years, you, you're in your family and your, your, your dad says, take out the trash or mow the lawn or do a paper route or you know, have a lemonade stand and you do a bit of stuff and you get, you get a bit of education. And sometimes we want to go from there to 
becoming an entrepreneur that's going to change the world. I read a survey many years ago, about 80% of people at college want to start their own business, but actually a really small percentage do. And so there's a huge drop off. Part of it is that you can be an entrepreneur, you can work inside a company and you can learn, you can do skills building. So if we understand the seasons of life, that there's a season of skill building, there's a ski season of gift discovery, and a corporate is a good place to do that. You know, you learn the disciplines, you learn how to communicate, how to handle yourself in meetings, how to do stuff on a timely basis. You learn some basic disciplines and skills. So I think that that's good. I would say the one thing that you can do is you can get a side hustle. This didn't used to be so popular 10 years ago, but now the thought of doing something, I used to say, look, get a job that's consistent with your purpose, with your identity, with your calling. Now I would say, yeah, have that in your mind, but maybe start a bit of a side hustle. Maybe you're uh, in college and you, you're building apps or web pages or, or bots or you installing vending machines in the dormitories or whatever it might be. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be sexy, flashy software. You are driving Uber. You're doing something else, but you're building up direct sales is a great way to go. You're selling knives to all your mom's friends. You're, uh, you're selling something because you learn some basic things. So taking the opportunity to learn some of those things along the way and then also not being too picky about the work. You know, I was chatting to an Uber driver last time we came to South Africa. He's a guy from Malawi or somewhere like that. He's worked like a dog and his son has been to university. The son has an engineering degree. I said, oh, is your, where's your son working? No, he's not working. Why not? Well, he's had job offers, but he doesn't think they're offering him enough. I mean, the guy has zero experience. And so don't be a legend in your own bathtub. Just get on and do the work, do something. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's a progressive journey. And then what you do as you go from your household years, your educational years, you get some corporate experience, your years of slavery, if you like, then you have some entrepreneurial time and then you build capital in its different forms depending on how you wired, you build capital. And then you're able to be a world changer, a societal transformer. So along this journey, as we've seen people, yeah, you don't go from high school to being world changer very often. It's very, very rare. Typically, you go through a process. And so that's my observation on that. And if you expect that God's going to take you through seasons, then you're not... I mean, I've had a lot of people, they don't know, what's my calling? What, what's my purpose? I'm like, what season are you in? And what is your next season? You ask God what your next season is, you step into your next season, and the bigger purpose might be something that unveils over time. I, I do think we have a very, I think the joke is a microwave mindset where people expect instant this, instant that, and these are even people that have studied. They know scripture. Yeah. They know that Moses spent 40 yeah. years in the desert. They know that Joseph was a prisoner for X number of years. They know that Jesus technically didn't start a ministry till he was yeah. 30. Yet we all think that it doesn't apply to us and that we're supposed yeah. to pop open a church or start a company or open up a, a social media channel and have a million followers within whatever. And I guess that does happen, yeah. but not, not that much. Brett, probably most of our listeners would fall into that mid-market business owner category yeah. or entrepreneurs. We've just got a few minutes here. What I'd love for you to do is just, and I'm going to let you to allow the Holy Spirit, maybe even to give you, obviously we don't have a lot of information and this might be a good opportunity for you to share some resources that you have, but what is something in the time we have that you would just like to convey to maybe those groups that, uh, that might be helpful and tangible for them in the next mm -hmm. few minutes? It's a good question, Tim. First thing I would say is be bold. This is not a time to back down. We're going through big changes in society. 
And part of the changes and the pressures that we've gone through with the pandemic, with the economic challenges and so on, is to beat onto your turtle shell or your tortoise shell to get you to shrink back. And this is not a time to shrink back. This is a time for us to be bold. Uh, recently, I was praying a prayer, like in the last week, God help. And the reply was, stand. And that... <laughs> And, and so a few days in a row, I heard this stand. So I looked up to stand in the scripture and I found that there were four places to stand. One was to stand in the presence of God. And it's an amazing thing. So when we, this, as we, we're under pressure, stand in the presence of God. Next, and it goes with it, stand on high places. Don't be afraid to step into the place that God has given you. And then you have to stand in the face of your enemy. So when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of God will raise up a standard. So we have to stand in the face of the enemy. And then the fourth one, which is kind of what we get to, that he causes us to stand in a wide open place. He puts wide ground beneath our feet. But we don't get there unless we make a determination to stand. So for business owners, entrepreneurs, this is not a time to be shrinking back. So I would encourage you next, Get with a community of people that are like-minded faith community as you have among your listeners. And so people who will spur you on and say, you can do more, go for it. You're not crazy. You're not alone. Then I would say get equipped. It's a little bit like becoming a parent. Before Lynn and I had our children, you sort of think, I can make a baby. I will be a good father. It's pretty stupid. You know, you, get, you have to learn some stuff. And so it's like, I'm a Christian and I'm in business. Therefore, I have a kingdom business. No, you don't. You know, we have to understand what is a kingdom business? You know, how do you get products that are inspired by God? How do you have marketing that demonstrates signs and wonders? Because God markets through signs and wonders. How do you hear God in your planning process? How do you put plans together that have a faith element in them, which if God doesn't come through, you're going to fall on your face? These are basic things. So get the education. And part of what we've done is taken thousands of people through what some have called a kingdom MBA. It's really a, an MBA from a business perspective, because we shouldn't go cheap on learning how to do business God's way. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't understand the master's business, but everything that the master showed me, I've revealed to you. So my slimmed down version of that is, if you don't know that your dad's business, you're not his friend. So if you don't know God's business, what's his operating model? What's his business model? And God challenged me once because I have this 10P profile for a business. And God said to me, profile my business. Can you imagine going to heaven, interviewing God for half an hour, and you've got to come back and say, this is God's business. And so I went through the thought process. So now when I look at business A and God's business, I can just see if where the similarities are, where the disconnects. And then A has to reconcile to B. This is to God. This is our ministry of reconciliation. So get to understand God's business and then figure out how your business fits into God's business. I don't care if you want to make a new widget, you want to build a new houses in Kenya, you want to go here, you want to do that. The question is, is your business in God's business? Not, is God in your business? That's not the question. But is your business in God's business? What's God doing in the world? That's the transforming society piece. What a, how do you fit into that? That's getting your business repurposed or aligned with the purpose, God's purpose, so that you can do what's on God's heart. And so those would be my two cents quick things, Tim. That was, that was so good. I'm so thankful that I got a nudge to ask that question because I, I can envision so many clips and information just from that little segment, Brett. All right. So someone should in all likelihood say, I, I, I love that, but I need more. Where do you want people mm -hmm. to go if they want more of what you just brought up or just more of what you have available as far as resources? I've I've been to your site, but go ahead and mention it or anything else that you want to mention at this point that would be a great resource for people. Thanks, Tim. I would say go to brettjohnson.biz.biz or .biz, depending if you speak English or American. So 
So Brett Johnson dot biz, and there's a right on the front. There's a question of what resources are good for you, and it really depends on your question. If you say I'm just starting out in my career, uh, there's some questions for you. I want to figure out how to integrate the parts of my life that'll take you to convergence. You know, I want to start a business that'll take you lemonpreneur. I have a mid market company, and I want to make sure that I've, I've connected all of the dots and so forth, then it'll take you to the repurposing business. Well, I'm, I'm part of a team where I want to grow as a leader. It'll take you to lemon leadership. So if you go to that question page, which resource for you, just look at the questions. And then every now and then we schedule trainings that you can be part of. We have one coming up on lemonpreneur for, for entrepreneurs or people who want to do something. They might be entrepreneurs or have a mind to do something entrepreneurially. You might not even be an entrepreneur. According to our studies, only about 15% of people are. But how do you be part of a team that can create, co-create with God? So I would look at those resources, brettjohnson.biz. We do have podcasts. So I put out podcasts every now and then. It's supposed to be every week, but every couple of weeks or so. So there's a couple of hundred podcasts there. And then I'll also you'll find a blog spot and so on. But we'll, we'll advertise. Once you go on to the... There's some free resources. So there's some Kingdom Business Basics. Just go through some. You can download them, watch a bit of a video. There's a PDF you can download, just 15 things which should be self-evident. Go and get those. We have an introductory class, and that class is, the cost is whatever you want to pay starting at zero. So you say, okay, fine. I don't know who this Brett guy is, if his stuff, stuff is any good and so on. There's a Kingdom Business Basics. What's the history of God and business? work and ministry, all of that stuff, the history of what God's done over time. You can look at those things and that's essentially a freebie or you can pay whatever you want to pay. That's fine. And then you can, you, you'll see the other classes that are there. I would say get equipped, get immobilized, get mobilized. And the connection between these disparate audiences is I can take people out of Silicon Valley or Chicago or New York or London or whatever, and I can take them to somewhere else in the world. They've been trained to serve. So their corporate experience serves a mid-market person or somebody doing a startup. And so they're blessed to be a blessing. They take in everything that God's packed into their life, their MBA, their engineering degree, their marketing, their HR, all of that stuff. And they feeding it into somebody else's life and through the life of that leader into their people. It's a huge multiplier. And so... You know, if you're sitting in a corporate and I'm, you know, you're called to work at Bank of America, fantastic. Well, go and serve in another nation somewhere else. Go and serve one of those mid-market people. And that mid-market person is going to spin off entrepreneurs as well. It's a way in which you can connect the ecosystem. We'll include links and everything down in the notes. Brett, we're seek, go create here. Those three words. I'm sure you could guess where those three words yeah. originated. And I'm going to let you choose my final question. Just choose one that resonates more with you currently than the yeah. other two and why. Seek, go, or create. Go is mine. And the reason why I'm off to go is this, is because I, I see Jesus as quite binary. It's go or get behind me. Those are your choices. You know, so it's go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, go to this village, go to this place. Or if you try to stop me going, get behind me. But we've created this false third category, which is sit in front of your computer, sit in your armchair, uh, be a Monday morning quarterback, criticize the people who aren't going very well, you know, criticize the people who don't like Jesus or whatever. No, but there is no third option for me. For me, the going is imperative. And so for me, my passion is not to train people, have them read all my books or whatever. No. I want to mobilize people because they'll come alive when they're deploying truth. For me, truth in somebody's head just makes them more religious. Truth practiced, even with failure, makes them more dangerous. And uh, it's awesome. So for me, the go is a big deal. And uh, I mean, I get up in the morning and my wheels are going. And for me, it's like, have your passport ready. Make sure your bag is packed. I can't, my bag is always packed. I'm always ready to go. I travel fairly light nowadays, but I'm always ready to go. My passport is up to date because that's our mandate. You need a call from God to stay, not a call from God to go. So for me, it's go to go. 
Oh, Brett, man, you've encouraged myself and I'm sure others that have listened in. I appreciate that. Make sure you check out all of Brett's stuff. We'll include links to his page and all that they have. So go check that out. We are Seek, Go, Create here. We release new episodes every Monday. Your support means the world to us. Now you can tip us. Buy me a coffee or offer some financial support to the show here. Just go to seekgocreate.com forward slash support. You can start as contributing as little as a dollar. And if you leave a comment, your comment could be featured in a future episode. Go to seekgocreate.com forward slash support. Until next time, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.